Are you saying it was literally a big in Japan? Continuous delivery is something that humanity has sort of been doing in various different facets for a long, long time, and it's just, you know, now is the first time it's being applied to software. Software isn't shit anymore. Paul, there goes our clean rating. We never had a clean rating. The dirty builds just sat up. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. In this episode, we talk about what continuous delivery is and where it came from. Everything from SaaS and test-driven development to lean startups and human evolution. So Paul, where did continuous delivery come from? So this is this is one of those um, things that evolved over over quite a long time. But I think that the major sort of catalyst of continuous delivery was the fact that we moved uh, to SaaS and, and and that SaaS now exists. So uh, what was it like before there was continuous delivery? Like what was it like when you were starting out? The first company that I really worked for was a was a games company, and I think that a lot of them are, are kind of in in the same place now. Um, but you would release software on a on a disk that that's shipped to customers via stores, um, and you had to have a gold master uh, at some point. And so the the we were we were a startup, so it was, it was quite advanced, and, and we had a daily build server, um, and and we actually were, were selling middleware, so so we shipped software to those companies. But the, those companies would ship um, at the end of the day that they, they would ship a, a disk on a um, that that went out once. Um, and there was no there was no updates at the time. It was two thousand and three, two thousand and four, something like that. So there the, the, there wasn't any way to to automatically uh, update on on customers' PlayStation twos, I guess. Um, unlike uh, unlike e- e- even games now have have a little bit of continuous delivery, but back then that was you got your chance to ship it, and and that was it. Yeah, I just had a brutal flashback to one of my first summer jobs, which was installing Windows three point one. And this is back when you actually had, it was a set of 35 disks. So my job as a summer intern was to go to every computer in the office and like just literally sit there, like disk in, disk out, disk in, disk out. And if something went wrong in the install, I had to start over at the beginning. And, you know, so it was like a two hour long process just to get everybody up to 3-1. So in those days, like there was no chance of a fix pack. Like everybody, right. everybody was going to be, I think everybody's going to be on this version until probably they they got another sucker summer intern in there. And so if, if you imagine people and their um, people installing like even modern or, or relatively recent version of Windows, where where you have to think about you know the service pack one or service pack two or you know what what level are you patched to? Those that that was basically the old way of, of doing software. And the first step that or the, the the first time that I remember realizing that there was a different way to do it was in um, was in a Jolon software. Uh, blog post where he talked about Fog Creek uh, and and how fog bugs had moved to being uh, in the cloud, uh, and the the major or one of the major things that they could do is is, is that there was a bug they could fix it, uh, and in the cloud it would be fixed. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's good though to realize that the reason why there was so much emphasis back then on making sure that a build was correct was because there was such heartache and pain if right. it was wrong. Yeah, it made sense to hold up. The 
to hold up the release for for new features or, or for something like that if it was promised to a, to a customer because there was no alternative. It would be three or six or twelve months later when when they got the next opportunity to go out. And I I, I think frankly the you know the building software in in the cloud and having a, the possibility of doing a release at any time you like has has actually just completely revolutionized how, how people make software. I, I completely agree. I mean, so I mean, to go back to the old days, um, all the emphasis was on extremely high quality right. and extremely stable. Right, right, right. Um, because you basically had one chance. You were you were lobbying this thing out into the world. And and even things where where they had like quarterly release cycles or something like that, it was still it felt a lot like one chance. So when, uh, I worked at, at Mozilla and I was there on the on the switch from Firefox three to Firefox four, and Firefox four took eighteen months to to come out, and there was things that were ready to be released, you know, the first week of of that release cycle, uh, and that had to be held up for all these unrelated releases. I I think there was problems with the JavaScript engine and there was memory bloat and that sort of thing that kept pushing it back. And Firefox, uh, during the process that, or d- during the time that I was there, switched its process and it switched to um, what, what they call a release train model, where basically they ship a new version every six weeks, and it doesn't matter what's what shipped or what's not shipped. They, they'll hold it up for total like life or you know, build breaking. You know, it just doesn't work at all. Um, but everything, basically everything else, would make it would make it go out, and the. Uh, the cadence and the velocity that they're able to get since that happened ha- has been massive. Yeah, I mean, so that was the first evolution. Was it? You know, it used to be let's try to cram everything in, and then you'd get this vicious cycle where it's like, well, let's just put this one more thing in, and then right. you'd have to add on on the QA time. Right. Like, so that was the other reasons why releases would take so long, is you had so much QA. Interesting. Like I talked yesterday to a guy who had worked at Microsoft, and he said, you know, quality was. Things had to be rock solid for Microsoft. Going back to my disk right, example, right, right. and and these are people who have like unit testing, um, like automated tests as as part of their as part of their builds. But even beyond that, you know, you have to have a person actually try it, and then you have to actually tr- go out and try it on all these different systems. On all the different systems, right? So one of the things that that made it possible for for the browsers to do uh, to move to the release train model is that they had the the alpha channel and and the the canary channel or, or whatever it is they called it. In Firefox, it's it's the Aurora channel. Uh, that's the the super. Uh, actually, that's not even the super beta stuff. They even have a <laughs> nightly channel, so they have like a million people using the nightly, uh, and and that tells them whether things are broken and how they are in 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 fact in in, in production. And I guess it's it's kind of the first evolution of feature flags. Yeah, I mean, so so let, let's 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 talk about that for a second. I mean, think- right. we probably need to. Aren't we going to define things in this one? <laughs> yes, this is the definitional episode, Paul. Right. Let's start with what's a feature flag, because uh, I, I think we've already talked about six things that we haven't defined. But what's a feature flag? A feature flag is basically the ability to, I'd say, hide code but yet have it public. So it used to be that everything that shipped was visible. Um, so a feature flag is just basically an if-then that wraps a piece of code and says it might be shipped, but nobody could see it until I, the software team, decide that it's visible. Right, and so some examples of that um, could be in in a browser that you you change a preference, and the preference is use the new version of this. Um, or another example might be in uh, th- that a feature goes out in like Facebook that that's shown to one percent of customers in Northern California who are in this demographic. Yeah, and it's very liberating. Um, so the, the the very liberating thing about a feature flag is that um, if something is not working, you don't have to do a redeploy. 
Right, right, right. Like that you had, so so to, so to go back to our, the old dark days where you had all these discs out in the world, right. the feature flag is useless, you know, because you're going to ship all these discs out to people and they're going to stall it. Like yeah. the a feature flag is useful when people are consuming stuff as SaaS. Mm-hmm. The way that I think about a feature flag is that it separates the act of shipping code from the act of actually turning on that code. Yeah, deployment from rollout. Right. Yeah, so it's it's deployed, it's it's available, but it's not visible. Right. So now, now that we know what they are, what were we actually talking about? Uh, we're we're working our way through the evolution of of software. So we'd gotten up to release trains. Right. 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 And can, you should talk a little bit about how continuous integration fits into that. So, so continuous integration, I, I guess to, to define it, um, it's, it's basically the act of having an automated build server that runs every day or at some sort of cadence um, and uh, tests that your software works. So um, CircleCI, my, my company, makes continuous uh, integration as a service. And, and what happens there is uh, whenever you push to GitHub, we'll automatically check your code out, we'll build it, we'll run your tests on it, and we can uh, also deploy it to your to your customers, uh, which is called continuous deployment or continuous delivery, depending on your uh, on exactly how, how you think about the world. And you make this seem so simple, but it's really revolutionary. Um, I mean, I remember the days without this. Sure, sure. I mean, I remember we had uh, in my first job we had a daily build server, and so we would find out every day whether or not the the code actually compiled. Yep. Even though we could get it all compiling on our own machines or, or some modules of it or, or whatever compiling on on our own machines, there'd be all sorts of build artifacts and and dirtiness in in, in the code that meant um, that, that meant that just code. Didn't actually work when it was ready to be shipped to customers. Yeah, or, or even worse, like I remember, it used to be a thing when you broke the build. It was very shameful. Right. Yeah. It was kind of you know, it was, you know, you'd have to sing a song or you'd have to do something embarrassing, and that, that just doesn't really happen anymore. Right. Right. My my co-founder used to forget to ship to add new files to Git. So like it constantly wouldn't work, although it was perfectly working on his machine. But there'd, there'd be a file missing somewhere. <laughs> the classic excuse of "Oh well, it worked on my machine." Exactly. Yeah. 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 Another. <laughs> I didn't know about builds. My first summer job. <laughs> Not my first first summer job, but I had this. Um, I was programming Visual Basic. Okay. And I was making a. Um, I was making a war game basically. Mm-hmm. You know to. to it was for a defense contractor, and I was trying to justify like a space-based laser versus an airplane-based laser. Like, and if you had all these missiles coming over from Russia, okay, this is a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, how many could you shoot down? The thing worked perfectly locally, and then at the end of the summer, like they wanted it off my machine. I was just yeah. like, oh, oh, okay, right, right. You need to put it on a plane or, or in space or one of those things. No, they wanted my actual like files off my machine. Right. Yes, in order to put it in space or on a plane. <laughs> no, it was just a simulation. It wasn't. Right. Ac- I wasn't actually controlling missiles when I was nineteen. Right. Though that would have been cool. I had this this absolutely terrible release process at, at this at this place that I worked. At. It was O2, which is a, a really large um, phone company in in the UK and in Ireland, and I think they got bought by someone recently. But whatever. Uh, and, and they were launching this uh, this feature called iMode, and iMode is this massive thing in Japan that that completely failed to take off anywhere else, and it was it was amusing because everyone. Are you saying it was literally big in Japan? Literally, it was it was big in Japan, uh, and and so they tried to launch this in Ireland, and everybody in the whole world knew that this was going to be a failure, but that that was how how the how the process worked anyway. 
And the release process was they they had all this code somewhere um, that that was going to be you know deployed and attached in servers and and when they did that there's a manual I was part of the manual team that manually validated with handsets clicking through handsets manually that that this stuff actually worked there was there was no automation the the entire release process had to be repeated dozens and dozens of times as they fixed bugs and they reconfigured and. Uh, it was it was a, just a complete clusterfuck. Everything that you imagine. <laughs> Paul, there goes our clean rating. We, we we never had a clean rating. Oh, we were, the dirty builds just sat up. Uh, when I moved to to doing software that had any sort of of continuous release cycle, it was it was liberating because you you actually know the path from what you're doing on a on a day to day basis to it it arriving at customers and and everyone every developer in the place can know what that path is. Um, and everyone knows like how code actually gets shipped. It, it, you you don't have to keep it in a in a continuous state of, you know, oh maybe one day I'll ship this or or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think to go back when you had these longer and longer and longer release trains or even pre-release train, people got very lax. Right, right. Because it wasn't. It just was like, oh, I'm just going to sit in the corner and code away. Right. And sometime in the distant future, it might ship. Right, and then as you're coming towards the end of the quarter, everyone is is hammering things out as quickly as possible, and maybe there's a few things that that shipped early in the quarter that never got cleaned up or never got you know quite ready. What do you mean to- by shipped right now? So um, I remember sometimes where where you'd, you'd merge something into to master because you needed to get it tested, but it wasn't quite production ready. You know, it's 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 out for um it it's it's out with the beta testers or, or or something like that but in order for for to actually ship to hundreds of millions of people you you need to remove whatever hacky thing you put you put in place yeah so i, I think one of the the things that has driven continuous delivery is just the rise of test driven development that's interesting yes i mean i i i think it's obvious the um you end up in a situation where when you're trying to move to continuous delivery, you're saying, oh, "I'm afraid," right? And 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 we we talked about the fear last week. Uh, and and the in order to get past that fear, you need to have automated testing. And and you, I guess, in the old days, there was manual release cycles, that, and you can't do manual re- release cycles 10, 20 times a day. It's just not possible. Or you can't depend on having like a fleet. Like to go back to the Microsoft example, you can't rely on having two QA engineers for every. Developer, right? Who will you know? You just fling out code, and they'll find everything. But even even with, with two QA developers, you can't have two QA developers when you push code every five minutes. Yeah, they just they'll never keep up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then they'll never identify the change that actually caused the bug, and so on. Yeah. So I think the things we've talked about so far, SaaS has unlocked continuous delivery, test driven delivery, test driven development has unlocked it. What else do you think is really a foundational thing? I guess the other one is, is is kind of this this change in customer expectations. Customers, as a fact of of some people doing continuous delivery, everyone else has had to do it. So once you start to experience it a little bit, and you you start to wonder, like, you know, why do why do other sites go down um, for you know six hours on a on a Sunday night? Like the, the, this doesn't make any sense. Why do I have to download new versions of this software versus clicking the the update version, or or why do I even have to think about this? Yeah, um, and, and I think. Uh, for the for the installable software market or, or the desktop software market, Chrome was the was that sort of killer app that everyone realized that this has completely changed the game. Yeah, it's completely changed the game. I mean, you don't have to 
I think even now asking people to download like a plugin seems too onerous. Like right, they, yeah, yeah. They they don't want to do it. They just want stuff to work. So I mean, it's it's almost tied to a, to a conversion funnel. If if you expect people to install thirty one disks to to upgrade to the to the latest version of Windows, people are just not going to do it. You're not going to achieve the 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 conversion rate that that you're expecting. And there's too many alternatives to your to your app that are out there. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so Sean Burns, who's a LaunchDarkly advisor. He wants to stream everything, including his OS. He wants to stream his OS. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Containers, something there. Containers. Right. So um, we were talking about continuous integration. We we're talking about feature flags. Uh, what else is in this sort of uh, space of, of continuous delivery or, or important things? Um, the belief that users always know best. Interesting. So it t- ties to sort of product management and validation and, and, and all, all that kind of uh, ecosystem. I think there's been a steady realization that you as a company can have theories and users have facts. Right, right. So you, you, you basically have to put out software. You have to continuously deliver software to even have any idea if it's a, if it's a thing that, feature, that users want. Yeah, and I, and I think this ties really into lean. Right. So the whole idea of less waste. Right, right. Um, it used to be, you know, you would make a massive release, and I'd say um, Windows ninety five or um, was huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they actually had like a theme song for it. Yeah, no, I, I remember. Uh, it was Start Me Up or yeah. something. There we go. Yeah, and then and that gave uh, summer employment to interns for years because they had to install all those damn discs. I, I think with Lean, there's this idea that you know I don't know everything, and instead I'm going to break stuff down into little chunks and deliver those out and get feedback. Right. Is that a Cause or or an effect of continuous delivery? I think it's a flywheel. Fly. What does that I, mean? I think I think I think knowing that you can get feedback faster makes gotcha. you want to get fast feedback faster. Right. Okay. You know, I, I think there used to be this idea that you know a product manager or CEO was a god or goddess and they knew everything and then the world was just waiting for them. Yeah. And I think more it's you know as a product person you try your best and you put something out and then you see if people like it. So I think for anyone who's built any sort of lean startup or, or lean product or, or, or something along those lines, th- there is a sort of careful line between we know best and, and user feedback. And you know, famously, there's the, the, the kind of Apple Google distinction of Apple is just like you know great designers and they tell the world what, what they want and, and Google, you know, A/B test the color blue forty three times or, or whatever they did there. But I think for most startups, you kind of have to have to tread this line very carefully of knowing what you want to ship uh, and and knowing like how you're going to change the world versus you know actually getting that feedback and and actually seeing if in the real world people actually respond to it. I think that goes back to you have to have a theory. Like I don't. I, right. I, you have I, to have a theory that you're testing. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think any startup can afford to say I'm going to build ten thousand products and ship them all and see which one works. Right. Right. But they can say I'm going to break my idea down into little, literal chunks and yeah. s- and iterate and deliver them and, and and see how how people like them. Yeah. I mean, and this is the whole genesis of lean versus fat startup. So how how did people do lean before continuous delivery? That's a really good question, Paul. Um, I mean, you can still do lean with a, with a weekly or even monthly release. Right. Okay. I mean, like, so I was at an Internet of Things startup, and we did a monthly release. Okay. Um, and every month, so I was the product manager. We would think about, you know, what are we trying to prove this month? Okay. Is it that we want to do better onboarding? Is that we want to try to monetize more? And so you had to keep things along a particular theme or something to to manage the complexity of it. 
it was more, you know, we were we were small. So it's, right, right. So we were small. We were a small startup of eight people, and I didn't have a huge staff. Um, so I would say, okay, what what do, what do I really want to accomplish this month? And it was a really good forcing function. So how, how did you um, in in the monthly release concept? How how do you deal with bugs? Something goes wrong. Oh gosh! So that's part of why. So this goes back to why we had a monthly release was. Um, it was an Internet of Things company, and we had physical firmware. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, that, that, that's what you shipped actual firmware. Uh, <laughs> we we had firmware, we had middleware, and we had software. So I'll, I'll tell you what it was. It okay. was it was a Fitbit for plants. So it was basically a sensor that you put in a plant, and it'll tell you um, if it's getting enough light, is it getting enough water. The, the, this seems like one of the uh, one of the sort of the tropes that that people make in like the. Uh, uh, like it's a Fitbit for plants, it's an Airbnb for dogs. We were before there was Fitbit because I actually when Fitbit came along, I was like, oh, that's that's cool. Now we, I can now we could have done this for humans. <laughs> I was like, I was like, now people understand what we do, and um, it was actually one of the things that made me happiest about uh, my Fitbit for plants company, which called Easy Bloom, is I was describing it to Oren Teach, who sits next to me. And I had had this persona that you know gadget guys in San Francisco would love this. And Oren's like, oh yeah, we had 10 of them at Heroku. We had one in every plant. And I was like, awesome. It made me so happy. Um, <laughs> it was like when, when, you, when you meet one of your personas, they are exactly right. your persona. Uh, so I saw this, uh, this thing in, um, in the Science Museum in Dublin, or in the Science Gallery in, in, in Dublin, which was a, a plant that was connected uh, via an iPhone that was sitting in the in the plant cage with it, uh, to the stock price of I forget what it was, but the equivalent of of, of uh, Home Depot or something where where you would actually buy the plants, and whenever the stock price went down, the plant would be deprived of water, would eventually die, and would automatically uh, order a replacement for itself uh, from the Home Depot, thereby causing stock to go back up. This seems very uh, restaurant at the end of the universe. It it, it was a, <laughs> I mean it was it was totally a, a, a science project. It was it was, it, was amu- <laughs> it was intended to be sort of amusing and make you think about the world, uh, but I mean at it is very literally a fast feedback uh, continuous delivery cycle. Yeah. Did did, did you read um, any of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yeah, 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 yeah. With the the animal that runs around with the fork and knife, like eat me, eat me. Oh, the the cow in the in the restaurant at the end of the universe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so back to why we had a month release cycle is because we had actual firmware. And if you've ever shipped something out to a lot of gardeners, like that in and of itself is a feat to get them to use it. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't want to ever update their firmware. Of course not, no. Because no. it's a you know, it's a pain. Yeah. So like so we had to have a month long release cycle because if we made any change to the firmware, it had to be, you know, good. Okay. But they wouldn't even I presume they wouldn't even release it every we would release the. We would try to release the firmware as little as possible. Okay. The middleware as little as possible. The website we had a lot more latitude. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And then we had all these units in the field that we had to. So this goes back to continuous delivery. Mm-hmm. We we couldn't guarantee that they would be at a certain level of firmware. Right, right, right. Because they would never be upgraded. They're they're in a plant somewhere, and no one's going to plug in the USB cord or whatever to their to their plant to upgrade the firmware. Well, they would they would do it at their own schedule, which was basically the same as me and my iPhone, which is right. never. So as as you were talking about the plants there, I started thinking about this this parallel to sort of evolution and um, and you know, survival of the fittest and the sort of continuous feedback kind of kind of idea there. It, it seems that there's kind of a 
it, it seems like something like continuous delivery is something that humanity has, has sort of been doing in various different facets for for a long, long time, and it's just you know now is the first time it's being applied to software. Yeah, I mean, so we, we we touched on this the other day, but um, you know, newspapers used to be very good at continuous delivery. Like, right, it, it they'd used... have like three editions or yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think there's always, I think it's a very human thing to just crave the latest and greatest. Right. Like to 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 to, to not want to settle for the past, to want to improve, to want to get better things. I, I guess it's fairly obvious then that the cost of making those updates is always is always involved. So I, I'm thinking here of you know they, they did an update to Star Wars and, and Apocalypse Now and that sort of thing, and they they did those updates 20 years later because doing an update of a movie or a, or of an album or something like that is a very very expensive thing, and you only want to do it for you know something that is so massively successful or, or there's there's some kind of update for it. Or there's some kind of demand for that update, or some kind of ROI on on the update coming out. Yeah, I mean, so it's fascinating because you know who has a huge ROI on software is Wall Street. So I, I talked to uh, somebody who had been in technology at a Wall Street firm, and I, I'm not going to say who, but they were doing continuous delivery 10, 12 years ago. Like they didn't call right, it continuous right. delivery, but they were. A lot of Wall Street is just basically trading on proprietary algorithms. Yeah, yeah. And so they were shipping these algorithms like multiple times a day, because that's how they made their money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they had a slight edge, they made more money. Right. Um, it reminds me of how um, the Wright brothers. Have, have you heard the story about how the Wright brothers? You know why the, they got to powered flight first? Because they cared more. No, no. So, uh, so this is a really, really interesting story. The the Wright brothers were the worst funded of all the companies yeah. that were trying to get to to powered flight, and there was they, they, the original lean startup. Right, right. They had dozens and dozens of competitors, all of whom were were way better funded than them. And basically, what what they did that was different was they would iterate really, really quickly. Yeah. So they would they would try an experiment. The plane would break. They would fix it and and try again, like multiple times a day. Whereas their their competitors could you know release once a I say release, but you know <laughs> re- release once a week or, or or try a new experiment once a week or, or or once a month. And so continuous delivery is the thing that made the Wright brothers, who otherwise just wouldn't have had a shot at all. Uh, at being the um, at being the first to powered flight, that they were the ones who got there first. Yeah, and I think continuous delivery is really it, what it really unlocks is just more iteration. Right, right. I I think iteration is is basically at the core of of success and innovation anywhere that innovation is going to be required. Yeah, and and I think that's really key. And we touched on this in the past episode. Um, there's some places like Wall Street where innovation it is very much rewarded. right. It's life or death. Or Millions or trillions of dollars. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you know, if you same, same diff. <laughs> but uh, and then there's other places where you really don't want innovation. Like you know, when I go to pump my gas, I just want the gas to come out. I'm not sure I agree with this. Oh wait. Yeah. So uh, those gas machines or the the things that you put your credit card in or whatever, they're they're just about the worst UX I've ever seen. So if they had you know some sort of rapid iteration, or if they if they gave a shit about about customer experience, but why should they care? Like they're not gonna nobody's gonna go to a gas station because they have a slightly nicer pump. Like um, like, like your your thing is all about incentives, but are you really gonna say I'm gonna go a mile out of my way because like the UX is better when I get my gas out? No, no, no. I I, I think you're totally right. I, I don't think that there's that there's a sort of a cost benefit uh, analysis would re- would reveal that that there's a benefit here, but it would be better. Well, if they actually iterated on that well, software. Well, so, so going back to the financial services firm I was talking about, mm-hmm. 
he also said that they um, they had like insane memory leaks. Okay. And like, so he tried to fix the memory leaks, and his boss is like, "Well, nobody cares." Right. Like, we're not going to make any more money if we, you know, fix if we it. fix memory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, "We restart the servers every weekend." Yeah. Works fine. Yeah. And he's like, "But," and his boss is like, "It's not going to make us any more money." So like, so like everything in software is a trade-off. Like right. you could you could skew towards innovation and go towards continuous delivery, or you could say, you know, nobody's going to buy more gas if like that gas station has a new UX every five minutes. Well, theoretically, they could. The- theoretically, they you know the people could A/B test uh, their their UX and you know try to offer messages to suggest that they fill it up fully or that you know they they upgrade to you know, explain to them why why the higher octane. I actually know nothing about cars. I've never owned one, uh, but <laughs> higher octane something 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 is so better. Wait a, wait a second! You made fun of me for not updating my phone, and you've never owned a car. Oh yeah, yeah no, no. I have a I have a life philosophy of owning as few things as possible. Uh, I have a bike, a phone, a computer, and a bed, and I think everything else I could live without. My bicycle was stolen this weekend. I I feel, I feel your pain. I told myself that bicycle are cattle, not pets. I, I lost a couple of bikes, and I love those bikes. Cattle, not pets, but I still miss that bike. So cattle, not pets is something that comes up in the distributed systems context the, quite the, a lot, yeah. um, and I guess in, in continuous delivery as well. So, so what, um, what effect has the fact that we're all making distributed systems now versus you know, a piece of downloadable software, what, what effect has that on, on the rise of continuous delivery? Well, that, that's specifically why I kind of try to make that joke is that um, I think a lot of continuous delivery is the, 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 the belief that hardware is disposable, that you don't have to run your own data center to get good hardware, to get good software out there. So the, the, the rise of, of the cloud is the, so what, what, why is that a catalyst exactly? There used to be this theory that you had to be very vertically integrated, for lack of a better word. Okay. Like that you used to have to, even after you bought into SaaS, you would still have your own data center to, mm-hmm. to run everything. Like Salesforce. Yeah, like Salesforce. And I, I will call out Salesforce as they were the first company to explicitly get people to buy into the idea that software in the cloud was a good thing. Okay. Like that was their original logo. Yeah, yeah. Still their logo. Yeah. But now they emphasize the cloud more a lot. It used to just be the software with the slash through it. Yeah, yeah. And then people had this belief that that also meant no more software salespeople, and that was completely wrong. Right, right. So, I mean, what do you, what do you think about it? So, I, th- I think fundamentally, without the ability to use, uh, I guess it is hard to update a monolith. Yes. And fundamentally, the the relationship or the, the thing that that is created by SaaS is essentially you you have a bunch of uh, outsourced services, uh, whether it's it's your hardware provider or your your infrastructure provider or your payment provider or your database provider or, or whatever. They're all just separate services, separate departments with with kind of defined interfaces, and the the rise of services. Um, I think is one of the major catalysts of um, uh, of continuous delivery. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it used to be you had to be very vertically integrated. Like yeah. back to my Internet of Things plant company. Right, right, right. We built our own billing system, not because we wanted to. What what year was this? Two thousand and nine. In two thousand nine, you built your own billing system. Well, we tied into PayPal, but we still had to keep track of who would subscribe to what. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I understand. Oh. Like um, you know, because we we um, we tried to upsell people to different services 
And um, funny side story, I love testing. What I found is that um, if we put a PayPal logo on, people were much less likely to buy from us. Interesting. And this is in 2009, so things might have changed. Um, so I tested with and without a PayPal logo when people checked out. Yeah. And what people said was that the PayPal logo, because I asked them, yeah. it made them think that we were flaky or fly-by-night company. Yeah, yeah. That we weren't able to process our own credit cards. Yeah. Because at the time, in 2009, there were a lot of flaky companies who used PayPal. I, I read a, a similar thing by um, uh, Patrick McKenzie. And uh, for, I forget whether it's, it's his bingo card company or one of the other companies that, that, that he has, but the, the, they had a PayPal logo and he added a Google wallet logo. Um, or Google Payments logo or whatever it was, and it increased conversion across the board, except it didn't increase... uh, No one actually used Google Payments, but it increased conversion across the board. Oh, funny. Yeah, e- even even amongst the PayPal users, because it made them feel like this this is a real company that has like multiple different payment options. <laughs> and, and one of them is by Google, not and not not just like shitty old PayPal. Yeah, at the time, and, and and no offense to PayPal, at the time though, it was seen as the refuge of people who couldn't right. get a merchant account. Yeah, I mean that that's how I view it now. If I go to a site that only has PayPal. Like they could have integrated Stripe in in twenty minutes. Like, why are they why are they using PayPal? Yeah, Stripe is the best. We, we I mean we use it at LaunchDarkly, and it's just it's one of those things where it used to be you had to build so much to just build anything. Right. Like I like just to build a very simple feature, you had to build all this infrastructure. Like you said before about having to build your own build system. It seems like there's a, there's a connection there between now that all these all these services exist that that, that you can use. There's now actually time to focus on what the user cares about and giving a really good user experience and, and A/B testing the the onboarding flow. Whereas, you know, before if you had to keep the machines up and, and you had to build your your billing and you had to make sure that the money was still coming in and, and all that sort of thing, you didn't really have time to to put or at least it, it became outrageously more expensive to put time into the actual user experience. Yeah, it used to be just you had so much to do just to do anything. One of the things that has marked uh, this this era of enterprise software is is that software isn't shit anymore. <laughs> there the, goes our clean rating for sure. <laughs> the um, enterprise software used to be sold top down, and, yeah. and and the users never got to play with it before it got installed, and it was it was always just like c- complete shit. And th- th- there's this movement um, called uh, consumerization of the, inter- yeah, uh, of the uh, enterprise. The, yeah, I mean that was that was the whole premise of TripIt. Right. Right. Yeah, to concur, concur acquired us for 120 million because they're like, well, these people are selling bottoms up. Right, right, and and people actually care, uh, like these people actually care about the quality of the of the software. Yeah, I mean the at Tripit, so I was product director at Tripit. Mm-hmm. People would say, I love Tripit, and not, I presume, concur. Not so much, no. Not unless you were the CFO. Right, right. You know, because that was their buyer persona was a CFO. Gotcha. So presumably. The reason that there's an overlap between the rise of kind of SaaS enterprise software and and the uh, continuous delivery being a thing that people want in the enterprise is that high quality software is or, or high usability in particular, but 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 I think high quality is a more general case uh, has has become in demand since users started getting used to like really high quality software in the consumer space. So I guess kind of my thesis, and maybe this is I think this might be a topic for another show is. So right now, continuous delivery is the hotness. Okay. And at least that's my thesis. That yeah. What you said is innovative companies want to be doing continuous delivery. Yeah. So is this a fad? 
are we going to see a backlash? I mean, I, I think I think that's the topic for for future. Yeah, I, I think we can deal with it now. <laughs> uh, no, the, 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 there's not going to be a backlash. It's it's just going to become the the status quo. So I'm going to go pump my gas at a gas station that you know is continually updating the UI. Um, there's they're they're definitely going to be continuously updating the UI because they don't want to you know when they eventually have a have a new BD deal that that means that they have to sell ads or something on on the gas pump or in flashing lights. You know they, they're not going to want to send humans out with their USB sticks to to upgrade it. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's in the short term, but I don't think we're going to see any backlash against continuous delivery as a concept. We're already seeing backlash against SaaS and and against things that have like auto upgrading, uh, you know, security flaws. Basically, I think that when if people back away from SaaS or back away from you know things with various security vulnerabilities, they're going to try to to say how do we get continuous delivery to keep working in the model that 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 we're in. Wow. That that's a really broad statement, and this is why I like talking to you, Paul. Is you you lay out this brave new world, and I like thinking about it. Cause, cause well, the, the the problem I have is I don't actually understand the old world all that much anymore. So living in San Francisco, it's yeah everything everything is kind of this brave new world. I don't I don't own a car because it's on demand. I don't I, own a car. Well, right. But, and, but 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 when you get city car share, you still have to go to the gas station. Sure, sure, but the. I guess what I'm saying is is more around living in the future. You know, you you rent cars by the hour, or you you press a button in your app, or you know, your your something comes in your watch, or, or whatever it is. Well, the streaming world. I mean, so that that's my whole thing. That like yeah, it used yeah. to be. It used to be like um, it used to be like I had a Lonely Planet guidebook for San Francisco. Right, right, right. right. Now there's Yelp. Yeah, or and, just the internet in general. Well, just the internet in general, where there's continual updates, and you don't have to have a physical artifact. Right. Or right. I remember. Um, I remember when I would tape songs I liked off the radio. Oh wow! No, I, I remember that in in in, in high school. Yeah, because otherwise you didn't know when you would hear it again. And now, if you hear a song, you if you're out and you hear a song you like, you just you use you, you soundhound it and you download it. Okay, I haven't heard of that one. Soundhound is is a Shazam. Yeah. Okay. So um, on, on that note, there's a there's a backlash happening against Apple Music in the last couple of days. There's, there's always a backlash in Apple Music. It's just like, what is the current? Right, right. right. I mean, there was so the whole, there's the whole U2 thing because nobody wants Irish people on there. That's right, that's right. And and then there was the whole Taylor Swift thing. And yeah, like the, Apple, Apple Music is continually like, who can we piss off this week? So I was I was going to try to make it about continuous delivery since since I think that's that's what this show is about. The Apple is is one of the least continuous delivery companies out there. How can you say that when they forced you two on everybody? Didn't it take them a while to sort of step back from that? <laughs> it, it was like weeks before you could get before you could even release or you, you could not have YouTube uh, two on your. I still have YouTube. Well, that might. Be I, I I do as well. I don't actually know how it got there, but it's there. <laughs> they delivered it. They just don't, they just don't, so there's continuous delivery, but they don't know how to roll it back. Right. Right. I think there's a whole show to be told about about uh, rollbacks and, and and that kind of thing, and that's probably something not to get into now. What, what else was there in the uh, in the kind of overall state of things you need to know about continuous delivery? So we talked about things that fueled it, which was um, uh, the moving away from installing software, mm-hmm. um, the moving away from having to own a platform, right? Um, the rise of test-driven development, mm-hmm. um, the belief of lean. That trying out little right. units of value was bigger was better than big units. Yep. And then there was SaaS and there was Salesforce and there's always Apple. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's the the majority of uh, of how 
continuous delivery got to, to where it is? Yeah, I think it's I think continuous delivery, and I think I think you put it very well. Um, people demanding more, like the you you said, people demanding more from their software, like people demanding a better experience, faster, right, right, quicker right, right. now. Yeah. So that was that was tied to the consumerization, the enterprise, the the rise of actually useful enterprise software and not shit. Yeah, or just you know, and, and I think what fueled the consumerization of enterprise is people saw all the the wowy consumer products and said, why am I going to work every day with this thing that's awful? Right, right. I think that's all we have time for today, Paul, but uh, we're excited to hear from more of our listeners about what they think about the show. And you should tell them about our, our new Twitter handle. Oh, uh, we are at ContinuousCast, right, at ContinuousCast, twitter.com. And uh, yeah, we, we want to we hear what you guys want to hear us talk about. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. 